Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on moviehousememories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from lunchtimemoviereview.com, and we are the children of the 80s. Welcome back to another episode of Lunchtime Movie Review, the podcast where we look back at the films of our childhood to see if they stand the test of time. I'm Patrick, and with me this week are... I'm Chris. G'day, I'm Shane. And Shane's back for a second episode. Welcome back, Shane. Thanks again for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Glad we didn't chase you off. (laughs) (laughs) And this week we're reviewing 1983's Blue Thunder. But before we get into our film summary... First, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Things That Go Wee. Do you like to go left? Do you like to go right? How about up? How about down? Well, good news, fellas. Things That Go Wee is bringing in the Blue Thunder all stealth-like with guns a-blazing. What does that mean? We don't know, but as long as you're having fun, it doesn't matter. So don't sit by like some Jaffo at 1030 at night. Let a, let a holler out for your $50 because you're going to be so damned excited, you'll be doing loop-de-loops in your chair. <laughs> all right. Whatever. <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> That's all I got. Okay. Well, it was better than Wookiee Ookies from the Star Wars Holiday Special, but uh, whatever. <laughs> I, I really don't know what I what else. I, I was thinking nude yoga, but I can't do two perverted uh, commercials in a row. <laughs> Oh, that's that thing was crazy. I forgot about that. Yeah. Oh, I remember that. So <laughs> okay. when when uh, I told my mom that we were going to be reviewing Blue Thunder today, she's like, "You mean that film where the girl exercises?" And I'm like, "I I don't know. I haven't seen it, Mom." So I I watch it. Then I send her a text. I'm like, "It wasn't exercising. It was nude yoga. You remembered." So that's my mom's story for Blue Thunder. All right, the summary for Blue Thunder. Frank Murphy is the Rambo of helicopter pilots. He is a troubled Los Angeles Police Department officer haunted by experiences in the Vietnam War, and nobody really wants to fly with him. In today's world, we would diagnose him as having post-traumatic stress disorder, but in 1983, we would just say that he's fucked up, and he needs some quality time alone in the forest with a machine gun. One other pilot even goes as far as to say that he wouldn't fly with him even if you gave him a bull that pissed Jack Daniels. In 1980s, that's a hilarious joke. But despite the other officers' reluctance to fly with Frank and their preference to perform fellatio on male bovines in the name of alcoholism, Murphy gets an eager co-pilot in the form of the wide-eyed Jaffo named Richard Lymongood. Lymongood, fresh out of his father-in-law's grocery store, flies with Frank to help provide assistance to police officers on the ground. Murphy and Jaffo get sideways with the department and get suspended when they're they're off playing Peeping Tom on a female Cirque du Soleil performer while a member of the city council is attacked and brutally murdered nearby. Flexibility trumps politicians. That's the better way to get screwed. Murphy is soon pulled off suspension, though, and selected to pilot the world's most advanced helicopter, nicknamed Blue Thunder, because that's what you do to employees that are showing signs of mental instability. 
Loop Thunder is a military-style combat helicopter intended for police use in surveillance and against possible large-scale civil disobedience during the forthcoming Olympic Games. Remember, this is 1983. At that time, the worst thing the writers could think of was some pissed-off and dejected French gymnastics fans getting rowdy in West Hollywood after losing to Mary Lou Retton. Rodney King was still about a decade away. Blue Thunder was built with stealth technology that allows it to fly virtually undetected, much like Daniel Stern's career today. Additionally, the helicopter has built-in infrared scanners, powerful microphones, and cameras, and such high-tech shit such as a VCR. Even Blue Thunder knew Betamax was a bust. Most impressively, (laughs) though, Blue Thunder has a mini cannon strapped on on its front, which can take out the entire cast of the film colors if they get out of line. At the military's demonstration of the helicopter, Murphy is told that the cannon aims wherever the pilot is looking. Apparently, the pilot for the demonstration is Ray Charles because the helicopter takes out dozens of innocent white civilian figures while it it is in the process of taking out the red bad guy figures. However, the pilot for the demonstration isn't the rhythm and blues genius, but is in fact a droog who is a big fan of Ludwig van. The pilot is Murphy's old commanding officer from Vietnam, United States Army Colonel F.E. Cochran, played by Malcolm McDowell. He is the primary test pilot for Blue Thunder, and he hates Murphy, which makes even more sense that Crazy Murph would get to pilot Blue Thunder. Cochran even attempts to kill Murphy and Jaffo by sabotaging their helicopter during a test flight, but the duo survive relatively unharmed. Murphy begins to suspect that something is up and begins investigating the death of the city councilwoman on his own, believing that it is more than just a random murder. His feminine intuition tells him that Cochran must somehow be involved, so he and Jaffo use Blue Thunder to record a meeting between Cochran and other government officials, which reveals that they are working with a subversive group that is intending to use the heavily armored helicopter in a military role to quell disorder under the project codename Thor. Furthermore, the high-flying duo discovered that the group has been secretly eliminating political opponents to advance their agenda, and that Murphy and Jaffo just got added to that list. Unfortunately, Cochran looks out the window and sees the silent helicopter hovering and knows that Murphy knows what is going on. Murphy and Jaffo race back to the police headquarters to inform their captain, but unfortunately, the secret cabal is one step ahead of them and has one of their minions at the station. Despite that, Jaffa is able to secure the videotape recording and hides it in a dumpster at the local drive-in movie theater. Probably the safest place to hide something on Earth as everyone goes to the drive-in in 1983 and even fewer are paying attention to the movie screen. Unfortunately, Jaffo is captured upon returning to his home and interrogated S&M style. He's able to get away by talking sexy to his captors, but ultimately the officer is undone by the same bicycle that he relied on in breaking away. He trips over Moocher on his bike and is run down by Varric from Buck Rogers. Murphy finds Jaffa. So are you saying are you saying he didn't break away? He didn't break away. No. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Murphy finds Jaffo's body being collected by police and hears over the radio that he is wanted for questioning. Murphy finds a Wonder Year style recording from Jaffo that fawns all over Winnie, but does tell Murphy where the tape is. Murphy steals Blue Thunder and enlists his crazy girlfriend, Kate, to get the tape and take it to the local news station. Murphy directs her and protects her from the air while she demolition derbies it up on the, on the road. While Murphy is assisting his girlfriend get to the station, the evil cabal is able to convince the mayor to let two Air National Guard F-16 fighters attempt to shoot Murphy out of the sky, which results in free chicken for everyone in Chinatown and a big hole in a skyscraper in downtown Los Angeles. 
The fighters are eventually called off, but Cochrane disobeys orders and attempts to take down Murphy with another high-powered helicopter. During the battle, Murphy is able to perform a 360-degree loop through use of the Blue Thunder's turbine boost function and a terrible scale model to come in burning from behind, just the way Malcolm likes it, and blow him away with a little blue of his own. Murphy then takes matters into his own hands and destroys Blue Thunder by landing it in front of an approaching freight train. He miraculously escapes the explosion by timing the landing with his magic sanity stopwatch that enables him to casually leap out of the, at the last second, about 50 feet from the explosion. And that is Blue Thunder. And that was some poor editing in that scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to agree with that. All right. Blue Thunder was released on May 13th of 1983, the same day as Richard Gere's Breathless, the same month of Cheech and Chong Still Smoking, Dr. Detroit, Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, and a small science fiction film called Return of the Jedi. It grossed over $42 million, the 17th highest grossing film of 1983, right behind Never Say Never Again, Jaws 3D, and Scarface, and in front of Yentl, Silk, and Psycho 2. Nominated for an Academy Award for Best Film Editing, but lost to the right stuff. Did you say Jaws 3D did better than this film? Jaws 3D did better than this film. That was the biggest pile of crap. Yes, that was. I, I could still see that terrible shark coming at you, and with or without the 3D glasses, it looked like crap. Well, it was 3D. They probably made more money because of the, the extra money they charged for the glasses, maybe. That's that's probably true. I I never saw a Jaws film in the theater because uh, I was too young for the first one, except for Jaws 3D. And the reason I went to go see it was because it was 3D. Well, but, that's how they jack up the prices these days. So I can completely see them doing it back then, too. All right, Blue Thunder, released in 1983, as as described right before the 84 Olympics, and that's a, a crucial point in this film. Anybody remember seeing this film in the 80s? I remember seeing the previews, and I still remember the hype. And I remember that this film did not interest me. So I, ne I never saw it until um, we viewed it for... I, I viewed it for this podcast, so I, I do remember it, and I remember the TV shows. I don't know what came first. I'm going to assume the TV show came afterwards, but it, it was it was heavily advertised back in the day. Shane, did, did you did you see this in the '80s, or is this something you came to later? No, no, I remember seeing it. Uh, I would have been ten or eleven when it came out at the cinema, and. I remember really, really enjoying it. I thought this was awesome. And then when I revisited it for the podcast, it wasn't the action that I could uh, just remember. It was pretty dull in the action <laughs> department. And, and I have no recollection of the yoga, the nude yoga scene at all, but ironically. You, you were 10 or 11. Why would you pay attention to such details? Yeah, it was the, it was the action I was worried about. <laughs> Yeah, I, I remember seeing that. I didn't see this in the theaters. I saw this on VHS when it came out. Um, I distinctly remember this film. Uh, we rented it in January of probably 1984. Um, it was for a birthday party for me, and my parents rented two movies, and I had some friends over, and we stayed up all night watching the movies. Ironically, the my parents, when I was 11 years old, for my 11th birthday, rented us the R-rated Blue Thunder and the R-rated National Lampoon's Vacation, which we watched repeatedly over and over again all night long. We probably watched each of the movies three times through the course of the night. 
And some scenes more than others. Yeah, some scenes more than others. <laughs> I won't tell you which scenes they were. Uh, there was one in this film that we watched over and over again. And we also, someone, one of the other guys had brought in a, a VHS recording of uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller that I hadn't seen in that. But I remember watching it with... Uh, the, like four or five guys, so a uh, little circle jerk thing there going probably. But uh, it, it's but, very <laughs> it's very hard to pause the VHS right on the right spot. It's harder than a DVD. Yeah, very very difficult. <laughs> but we tried our hardest. Our eleven year old fingers were working as as hard as we could to press pause at the right times. But but I I, I remember really enjoying the film and watching it that, that that night and. It, it stuck out in my memory that even years later, I bought this on VHS when I was in college because I, I, I liked the film. And then I bought it on um, DVD, and uh, recently I've bought it on Blu-ray. So, <laughs> I, you know, uh, it's a, a film I've bought over and over again. So, obviously, I like the film. That's, that's why I chose it. But I, I find it really surprising, Chris, that you didn't see it at all in, in the 80s. It, it seemed to be a very popular film when it came out. You know, I don't know what it was that turned me off back in the day, but yeah, I, I just, it never interested me. What about the, the casting of the, the, the leads in this film, which I find really strange, the kind of the, what Daniel Stern's career became now uh, well, not even now, but more in the '90s, and the Roy Scheider was, was kind of being a Hollywood powerhouse, kind of at that time. I mean, he was coming out of all that jazz and Jaws, and you know, French Connection. I mean, he was he he was big Hollywood. What did you guys think of the the actors? You know, I, I love Roy. I think he was he's good. You know, he plays the the burnout cop. You know, we've seen it all before, but I just like his charisma. Daniel Stern, uh, seeing it again, he was a little bit more airheaded. He didn't really sort of bobbed around, didn't really sit with the the film, I guess you could say. Uh, But he's been around a while, as you say, and he's done different things, but never really did the action thing after this, did he? Which is, I suppose, what was intended. Well, if you want to call it action, I'd still say this is probably more drama than action, but it has some action. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I agree. I... I like Roy Scheider Scheider in this film a lot. I I do think he played the ex-Vietnam vet pretty well. Uh, Daniel Stern just was not a very good fit. I don't know if that's just the way they wrote the part or if he just didn't. I mean, he sure he was young. He looked like he was like twelve years old in this, but wasn't he also supposed to be like out of the navy or something? So he should have been a little bit less wet behind the ears for this. I think that it, his, it just wasn't written terribly well for him. Yeah, it was mentioned in some part earlier that uh, he was in the Navy on one of the ships and the mechanic was showing the um, mechanics of their helicopter. Well, he doesn't seem to know anything about helicopters. I mean, he just seems to be just up there as kind of a spotter. But it seems kind of ridiculous that, you know, you'd have a spotter and you wouldn't, they wouldn't know anything about how the helicopter works, you know? A spotter with poor eyesight, it seemed. That's true, too. <laughs> he, he didn't see those guys coming in his own room. That's right. What, one of the things that I think I think is the strong point of this film is that the kind of the realism of, the, of this film is that the, I, you, I honestly believed in 1983 or 1984 when I saw it, 
is that they could make this helicopter. It did not seem that far fetched at the time. And probably even more frightening is now that we're nearly, you know, over 30 years later, they probably easily, not only does helicopter probably exist in some sort of capacity, but it's probably more advanced and more, more dangerous than now. What, what did you guys think of it? It was, it, did it seem like science fiction ish or did it seem like th- this is based in realism? Uh, not science fiction at all. I just thought, yeah, yeah, very real. Some of the things on it are laughable now, but at the time, I mean, that, that wasn't out of the question. I'm sure police helicopters had most of that technology anyway, so to speak. And I did notice that a lot of the times it was just flying really low around the buildings and, you know, there would have been a few wires to contend with and everything. So I don't know. There was a scene too where there was gangs fighting and they just let them go. They kept going (laughs) past them and they looked like the Crips and the Bloods, (laughs) but they kept going. That was the watch district and the the cops just let them go. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Chris, what what did you think? It was that, is it over the top or is it believable? No, I think it's definitely plausible, especially when you see the Ferguson riots uh, that we had last year where the police brought in all this military weaponry that wasn't really that far out um, from what this was employing. The only thing that I thought was completely ridiculous were those F-16s. I don't think that they would have – I didn't buy that part at all. But also something that I did like was – and I, I was looking at this quite a bit, was when they were in the helicopters, the actors themselves, that looked very real to me, even when they were doing most of their 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 chases and stuff. And I thought that they pulled that off very well, and it, it that held up over the years. Yeah, I mean, they, they really had a Blue Thunder helicopter. I mean, there was a, a helicopter that it didn't have a, a working cannon, but it, it it did actually fly and was capable of flight, and it wasn't a, a special effect, something that they probably would do today if they were to remake this. Yeah, I think that helped with the film itself, being a real holico- a helicopter that you could see, and then they were getting in, and then you saw takeoff, uh, and the cameras obviously inside the helicopter when they were in the air. That all helped for me um, to make it a bit more realistic. And I also liked how Roy Schneider's banter, he'd seen it all, but he also had the the wily old ways about him to know what was going to happen as well. He, he wasn't silly. They couldn't put one over on him. No, I mean, he always seems to be kind of just right there, one step behind the bad guys, just trying to to yeah. to catch them. That he knows something is up the entire time, and it, it seems kind of weird. He's a helicopter pilot, police officer, but they have him. Uh, you know, he's he goes and does the investigation. He's the one who finds the clues on the the councilwoman and stuff like that. That seemed to, it's, that was probably to me the most far fetched. Uh, that my experience with police helicopter pilots is that they I fly the the you know the helicopter. I don't get on the ground and do anything. So, you know what I also found interesting was with that Trans Am. He was both the Smokey and the Band. That's true. He was. <laughs> that was a nice car. Yeah. Now, uh, this film started, uh, actually created a television series that came out in late 1983 and then also created a spinoff of what I call a ripoff that was Airwolf, which actually ran for like three or four seasons, at least in the United States. Did Airwolf get aired down there? With Jan Michael Vincent? I actually, yeah, I actually remember Airwolf more than I remember the 
Blue Thunder television show, maybe because it was Jan Michael Vincent. But, yeah, no, I didn't have any um, recollection of the Blue Thunder TV show, just Airwolf. And from memory, I didn't watch every episode, but it was okay, just not quite the same as Blue Thunder. I think it was a much smaller helicopter from memory. Yeah, it went faster, I think, is what it did. But yeah. uh, the Blue Thunder television series, I, I'm blanking on the guy, the, the lead guy. It's not the same characters. Uh, they have different names, although very similar. They still call the the Observer Jaffo. That was played by Dana Carvey before he done Saturday Night Live or anything, and I, I, which just blows my mind because it was a somewhat serious role in the, in the show. And Blue Thunder also had Rolling Thunder, which was uh, a, a police van that followed around and also helped in investigations that had uh, Bubba Smith and um, God, Dick, I think it was Dick Butkus, were the, the guys who were in the Rolling Thunder. It only ran about 13 episodes before it got canceled, but it it was off it was off putting for me because I saw the television series first, then I saw the film, and Jaffo gets killed in the film and I was like, Whoa, he doesn't get killed in the he's he's alive in the television series. I hadn't associated that they that they was completely different characters, just the same plane or same helicopter. And you're saying Dana Carvey as of Wayne's World. Yes. He was in it. Wow. Yeah. You see, I, I just don't remember the show. I only, only remember the movie. But it, it has the premise of, of a good show, so I'm surprised it only lasted 13 episodes. It, I mean, it was it was a la Chips, uh, TJ Hooker. It was a you know police procedural of the week, you know, except in a helicopter. That was about the only thing. It's... They 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 used a lot of the scenes from the films. They they didn't film a lot of new footage for it. It was wow, look, there's Blue Thunder uh, flying between the buildings, the same as it did last week. Yay! So right, they didn't put a lot of money into it. Uh, maybe if they'd gotten a season two, but I think it only ran thirteen episodes before they pulled the plug on it. Okay. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to review this is it was just recently announced that Sony is putting in development a remake of this film. And I was both interested and kind of uh, hesitant about the film because I don't know if you could do it better in the, in the same type of circumstances without going too uh, science fiction-y with it at this point in time. This, this seemed high-tech at the time, but believable, but... All the things that this this helicopter could do probably can be done now. Where do you take it in the next step? What What are you guys' thoughts on that? I definitely am interested. And, you know, I think they'd have that terrorist edge to it. They'll definitely ramp up this technology on this new Blue Thunder and make it so tech-savvy that they'll probably do it like the, uh, the Olympics or some big event. They'll ha- they'll roll it out for it for the movie. But what I would be more interested in is if they did a crossover with RoboCop. How good would that be? <laughs> RoboCop and Blue Thunder? No, that that would be good. Get the new RoboCop, or do you want the old kind of uh, slow-moving RoboCop? <laughs> No, I, I didn't mind the new one, and seeing they're both from the same company, it could work. That's true. Could it's? Uh, I don't think Joel Kinnaman is doing anything right now, so maybe he can <laughs> pop all over. No, I, th- I think it's a good idea. I, I definitely see it. Chris, I know you hate I- remakes and sequels. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's just another sign that Hollywood's bankrupt for original ideas. But I think that they could actually make an, another plausible film out of this. I mean, with today's themes of terrorisms and rioting in the streets, I think they could. I just hope they don't make the thing transform or um, anything ridiculous like that. 
They might make it invisible. What would you think of that, Chris? Oh, uh, an actual stealth. That's pretty much all they could uh, go to at this point. Okay, and then you're going to, and I'm going to check out. Okay, I, 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 I've lived through James Bond's invisible car that I, I still cringe when I think of that scene in uh, Die Another Day. Um, yeah. So uh, let's let's get over. I I know it's there's technology out there that can help that, but not if it's moving. <laughs> it's just not believable. You might be able to create something stealth wise that if a sitting object, but not while it's flying in the air. It's just it's too far. Hollywood, don't do it. I don't believe it. Plus, uh, wow, there's Blue Thunder in the sky. How can you tell? <laughs> With safe on special effects. <laughs> The the Roy uh, Schneider character will probably be more uh, Jack Bourne like as well because that's kind of what you have to do these days too. That's true. Oh, I just want to talk about his girlfriend. Did did either of you um, find her willing to uh, to go through all these police uh, sirens and chase scenes and all that um, just because because her husband to- told her to get this tape out of a dumpster. I mean, I don't think she really knew anything was going on that would require her to act that extreme towards the people that her husband, boyfriend, whatever it is, works for. No, I definitely think she had a bit of a split personality anyway, sneaking in at 3 o'clock in the morning and, you know, giving him all those phone calls. But, no, I didn't find that very realistic at all going through the dumpster. No, I, I, you know, the Candy Clark's role in the film entirely was like, wow, it was Amy Madigan or Holly Hunter not available at that point in time because it just seemed like I, I, I often forget who plays the role because she's so they all seem to be very similar in the, at least in the eighties, but that yeah, I, I agree that you know she's she's willing to risk life and limb so so easily in the you know trying to get that tape to the to the police station, but she doesn't, I don't know if she really understands what's on it, but I guess they do kind of hint at it earlier when she gets, she misses her exit on to go ride the train at the park. And she goes, she goes suicidal going the wrong way on a one, one way road. She was just a little crazy. Yeah. I forgot about that scene. And what about uh, Malcolm McDowell? He was annoying right from the minute he took that helmet off. And then he used to he point at them and say, catch you later. I just thought that was annoying from the start, and he, I'm really glad he ate it. <laughs> well, it was predictably that he was going to eat it, but it, it was like, I, you know, I thought it was really strange that they kept showing these flashbacks for a Murphy of Vietnam and what, you know, somebody being thrown out of the helicopter, but they don't even tie it together with that Malcolm and Dow till the very end. And I thought that could have been a very interesting dynamic between the two is that why, why he got, you know, he almost, he got run out of the military or was going to be run out of the military before he got hurt. And why Malcolm Dow even allows him to be near the plane is like, you know, he's, he seems like, oh, we'll take care of it. But, you know, all you have to do is say, no, I don't like that guy. He, you know, he was insubordinate in the military. Get him off the project. It would have been that easy. It's not like everybody loved Murphy that much. It's an elite program. You get elite people and you definitely can just say next. Yeah, well, I just, just was annoyed with Malcolm McDowell and, and the clothes he wore, those turtleneck sweaters. Oh, please. He's what you would call an 80s douche. <laughs> Exactly. Well, 
I also thought it was funny that Malcolm McDowell was clearly English in this. He didn't even try to hide his his accent whatsoever, and he was supposed to be a commander of uh, American troops in Vietnam and leading all these uh, American uh, what was it CIA or FBI? I forget which. I thought uh, all I thought these. it was CIA, but so he's uh, in charge of all these American CIA's when this guy's clearly British. So I liked Warren Oates, who played the police chief too. He was he was good to the point. He wasn't your stereotypical police chief, I thought, and he sided with Roy Schneider's character, <laughs> which was a very good thing in the story wise. Anyway, yeah, I you know he's underappreciated in this film and apparently died shortly after it was completed, but. Um, and the film is dedicated to him, but uh, he's he's playing the Warren Oates like character. <laughs> he doesn't. He's he's not not a lot of range. He just plays a tough, grizzled cop, and he's got some really good lines in the film. Not as good as I, I, you know, drinking uh, Jack Daniels from a, a bowl, but. <laughs> I guess, but when you look at them as a collective, this cast, there's not a lot of range from any of them. If as a whole, I think it's all down to the aerodynamics and, as I call, action scenes in the drama that really make this film work for me. Anyway, yeah, no, I would I would agree with you. They 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 fit their roles and they don't. There's not a lot of development of any character from beginning to end, other than a little bit for Murphy that you get to know a little bit about his past. But you know, everybody else is just here. They are now. They're gone. Move on. Yep. You know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, let's go around the um, go around the room or go around the radio, I guess. Uh, what are our thoughts on Blue Thunder, Chris? I'll let you go first since this was your first time seeing it. You know, I'm not going to say that I disliked it because uh, I did think that overall it, there was a lot of enjoyable parts to it. The, the story I thought was a little disjointed and didn't. There's a lot of plot holes that didn't make sense to me. But it, it's not my favorite film. But it's not a bad film either. I would watch this one again. Shane. You know, I definitely remember it being a bit more exciting than this. So watching it again, I thought it was a little dull. But overall, uh, I still really like it. There's just something about it that grabbed me in. Uh, I like Roy Schneider. I like the helicopter. And I like the stunt work in the air that they do. So I I really didn't mind it at all, although not as much as I did as an 11-year-old. You know, I, I loved this film when I was a kid, and not just because there's a nude yoga scene. But uh, that, I still can't remember that as a kid. I don't know what I was doing. I might have gone out to get some popcorn or something. Yeah. I just don't even remember that. Yeah, your mom sent you out. Go, go get the popcorn. <laughs> Would they have cut it out for Australian audiences? I doubt it because we show anything down here. We, <laughs> oh, okay. our, our, our rating system is such more relaxed than other parts of the world. So yeah. I doubt it. It would have been in there. The film is a little dated. I will give you that. And I agree with Shane. It is not as action oriented as I thought it was, but I still think it stands the test of time. I still think it is pretty entertaining. It's not, it's not so dated other than to say the Olympics are coming in 84, but I I think the idea of it is still pretty good. I think that's why they're looking at it for a sequel. I just hope they just don't take it too, too far advanced when they make the sequel and they have to do good casting with it. I think that I think it's a film that could get be, be done better now, but they have to 
you know, they'll, they're going to make it much more action oriented. And I agree with Shane that they're probably get, there's going to be a terrorist angle to it that, that comes into play. That's the only way that works. I think Eddie think Murphy's make free it in 3d. Oh yeah. It's going to be in 3d. <laughs> so, and uh, Eddie Murphy is free, Chris. So, <laughs> <laughs> he, he, sorry to he, cut you off, Chris. Yeah, he's going to play. Uh, <laughs> he's going to play Jaffo. So, <laughs> you know, at any point, did you guys think that the helicopter that Malcolm McDowell was flying would have been sufficient instead of Blue Thunder, just for crowd control? I, I thought it would have been just fine. Put a couple of guns on the side and with some uh, bean bags or something to shoot at people, and it would have been much more effective than spending all this money on a. High-end helicopter. Well, the, but the idea was that they, I think they make reference that police helicopters could not be uh, militarized. They couldn't carry armaments. Only military helicopters could do that. And for what they wanted to do, which was crowd control and civil disobedience, you know, they would just need an armed. I don't know what they need the stealth mode for. I don't know what they need the microphones and the cameras for. It, that's more for, you know, just kind of like you know, spy stuff and the, to work on, to work on in the United States, which is what the CIA can is illegal is legally not allowed to do. And you had those infrared sensors to look inside the building. I mean, that worked. Yeah. The, no, that was one of the, actually, I think that's one of the best scenes in the film is when they're listening to them talk and they don't know that they're there outside the window. I, you know, I think uh, when Malcolm McDowell opens the, the blinds and sees the helicopter, still, I think I was like, that was a great, I thought was one of the best scenes in the film. It's not really action-oriented, but it's just very dramatic. That's right. And taking the plane upside down into that big loop, I don't know if that could actually happen, but uh, it was filmed well, I thought. Yeah. I actually looked it up. <laughs> this week because i wanted to know uh, apparently some helicopters cannot but there are helicopters that can do that they have to adjust their rotors or something before they can complete a one a 360 but it can be done at least today i don't know if it could be done in 1983 but it could be done today with the right helicopter there you go and if robocop was flying it and they did it and it crashed well, at least he could get out and walk away exactly they just replaced the parts <laughs> Would you need a helicopter to do loop de loops for crowd control, though? I don't think so. No, not really. So no, I don't think so. Except where they could be. Oh, look at the helicopters doing a loop de loop right before they shoot them. So, <laughs> all right, that does it for this week's review of Blue Thunder. Thanks once again for joining us and listening to our little uh, week. Um, I'm just going to say weekly podcast. If you've had a good time, the fun doesn't have to stop here. You can follow us on Facebook at Lunchtime Movie Review or on Twitter at Lunchtime Movie. On either Facebook or Twitter, you can keep up on our written film reviews, news on upcoming films and blu-ray releases and information on upcoming podcasts on the mhm podcast network including movie house memories lunchtime movie review mail bonding and the number two review additionally you can all you can follow us on all of our side projects chris hosts the number two review podcast which can be heard here on the mhm podcast network additionally you can follow him on twitter at Haley creative shane writes regularly for sydneyunleashed.com and is a contributor to cultradioagogo.com you can follow him on twitter at movie underscore analyst where you can keep up on his film reviews and celebrity interviews of some big celebrities Finally, if you've enjoyed yourselves and you've downloaded us on either downloaded us off of either iTunes or Stitcher, make sure to rate our podcast on either one of those two platforms. And if you have a chance, write a short review of the podcast. Of course, we always like the reviews that are positive, but we appreciate any feedback that we get from any listeners of the show. 
Well, that is it for this episode of Lunchtime Movie Review. Until next time, I'm Patrick. The ladies call me Blue Whimper. (laughs) (laughs) No worries, I'm Shane. Uh, We got to get out of here right now, and you guys are invited. is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Lunchtime Movie Review Fireworks is provided courtesy of Alexander Nakaranda at serpentsoundstudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of MHM Podcast Network, Lunchtime Movie Review and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment LLC unless otherwise noted.